Hello again. Welcome back to the Break the Twitch podcast, all about minimizing distractions and doing more of what matters through minimalism, habits, and creativity. I'm your host, Anthony Ungaro. In this episode number 23, I sit down with Julie Kearns, the founder of social enterprise Junket, Tossed and Found, and an advocate for environmentally ethical commerce strategies and conscious consumption. This is a longer episode because we cover a lot of ground in it. Some of the topics include how to best handle the things you're ready to declutter, how to minimize waste and your environmental impact, the dark side of donating, as well as information on downsizing, upcycling, consent, and the narcissism of stuff. This episode with Julie will get you in the sustainability spirit and help you consume more consciously going forward. If you're looking to declutter your home, build a meditation habit, or reignite your creativity, we have an audio course for that. The price will be going up next month for new signups, but right now you can lock in unlimited access to the entire course library in the Break the Twitch member community for just $9 per month. Each audio course walks you through a small daily step over the course of 21 days that will help you reach your goal. New members get a 20-minute coaching and welcome call to help you get started too. All you have to do is go to breakthetwitch.com community to find out more and get immediate access to everything we offer. But for now, let's go ahead and start the show. Julie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, I'm thrilled to to have you here. Looking forward to talking today. Where was some of the starting themes of your interest in sustainability and reusability? I fell in kind of by accident. Grew up thrifting. You know, dollars were tight in a a household with five kids and and a single income, blue-collar income. And so um, I had always been a fan of of Goodwill shopping and, you know, being able to find fashion that didn't break the pocketbook off, you know, when I was babysitting, et cetera. Continued to enjoy the hunt, the thrill of the hunt, the finding special different things. That was, I appreciated the offbeat nature of that. Um, and because of that upbringing, I hadn't really been all that engaged in consumer culture. Um, just didn't really, wasn't a big like mall shopper, wasn't, didn't do a ton of those things. And then when I met my daughter's father, um, I, he was more mainstream and I found myself, I found myself doing more things kind of, I think I lost part of who I was through that. Mm. And, um, and so became more acculturated to, going and shopping and buying the things at the mall. And it was just part of what we did and had a consumption lifestyle that it felt like the thing I was supposed to do at the time. Life took kind of a, a double income, no kids lifestyle. Um, and then um, after that was the, the a little one came into the picture. And that changes how you think about things, right? Um, changes your perspectives and priorities. Um, but um, something else happened right about the same time that, that shifted things even more for me. And that was um, right after she was born, um, my marriage ended. I hadn't seen it coming. Mm. 
And so between postpartum depression and um, the divorce diet, which is typically good for 30 pounds anyway, I wound up losing 50 pounds. Um, oh, wow. And yeah, and half the household income was gone. And I had this tiny little three-month-old um, female who was going to be looking up to me um, and, and the example that I set. And that was a pretty powerful motivator. Um, but the weight loss was a different problem. And um, I didn't have money to buy new clothes. I needed to continue my corporate office job. Oh. And so I went back to my thrifting roots. And um, the Goodwill outlet um, sells cl clothes by the pound. It's where it's the waste stream where the things that don't get sold at a Goodwill store go. And I was a little girl size 12, and I didn't need um, I didn't need to try that clothes on. And so you know, so khaki pants, you know, Gap Kids, and t-shirts and whatever. And and I was just trying to get through, right? Trying to get through the job that you know my corporate management job and getting my daughter to daycare in the mornings and trying to figure out this, like, all of the dreams were gone, right? But one dream actually had come back and I didn't realize it. I, I had long wanted to be self-employed and I had long wanted to be um, a parent that could put their child's needs first. And um, and it didn't really click to me as, as being anywhere heading in that direction remotely until um, as I was continuing to consign my old clothes and then started to heal some of that new clothes um, that I had bought, or secondhand new clothes that I had bought at the thrift store, um, made its way um, into my consignment racks and then made its way onto the consignment floor. And one day at the consignment store, I picked up a check and there was an itemized list there of what I had made money from. And, um, and one of those things was a size 12 t-shirt. And T-shirts weigh, what, what, half a pound, um, maybe. And so I'd paid maybe 50 cents for that T-shirt. And the, the consignment shop had sold it for 10. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and not only had they sold it for 10, but I, that meant that I got five. And, and I'm sitting here trying to figure out how to make money and trying to figure out how I'm going to do that when I'm already working 40 to 50 hours a week and taking care of a little one, you know. And I was just like, you know, that's, I mean, that's kind of chump change, but it's 900% ROI. And I was just like, you know, could this be that thing? Could this be the shift that takes me out of, um, out of this traumatic experience? Could it be something that I could scale? Could it be, because there's, I don't, you know, I can take some risk. I can be wrong and test this thing. And could I turn that into an income stream that allows me to be someone who puts my daughter first and allows me to leave um, a corporate um, lifestyle behind? And um, yeah, it turns out I could. So I it took about a year and a half to scale it to the point where I was able to, um, I was starting to list things online. I was running all sorts of things around to consignment stores. I'd figured out which stores took what. I was making a point to learn from people um, what they needed, right? So how can I help you and the win-win and looking for that. And I bought a house in the neighborhood. I um, Around the time I still had the job, I still had my corporate job, got things taken care of, and um, bought a house that was big enough to do Airbnb and that had a dry basement so I could continue to grow this business that I had started um, in my own space. And that's relevant because it comes back later. I had bought it. I bought it for another reason too, which was I want to be able to downsize intentionally into something much smaller later. Um, and so if I buy this now and the market comes back, I should be able to you know, maybe buy a house or home outright and still salvage a different dream that I'd had previously. So a year after I had started doing this thing, I was six months into the house. I, I was figuring it out. It was good. And basically, 
Um, I walked into work one day. Um, I'd already decided I wanted to be gone in about six months, and I wanted, but I was trying to. You know, I wanted to save save capital to get there. Um, and the company announced that they had layoffs pending, and they were going to be announcing the following week. I don't know who does this, right? But this company was going to be announcing layoffs the following week. They weren't taking volunteers, um, oh. but they just. They, but they, they just wanted to let people know that this was going to happen. It was the first layoffs that the organization had had, and and it was. Anyway, so I, I was like, you know, I want to leave anyway. My, you know, my employees are, you know, in different life stages. They're buying houses, having babies, getting married, um, and they're making a lot less than I am. And this would be a traumatic shift for them. Whereas I'm ready, and so I kind of like walked into my boss's office, and I'm like, I am not telling you I want to leave. I am not volunteering. I would be happy to continue staying. But if my name is on that list and you're struggling with the decision, I can make it easier for you. A week later, he came and grabbed me. We hugged it out in the HR room, with the, right? And um, and I I was off on my way. The reason I share it is, and I share as much of that is that I, I got what I thought I wanted, being self-employed, right? Um, and six months in, after spending those six months pretty much in my basement listing things on eBay. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really struggling with them. Like I found the way to make the money. Um, but there was no, there was, there were no systems to it, right? It was one-offs. It was um, individual listings of this piece of clothing that you had to, you know, measure and take down six things and get the good pictures and and the shipping and the fulfillment and all of the things. And it was, um, it didn't feel, it didn't give me the, the, like it just wasn't, it wasn't, a good soul fit. And I remember sitting on the floor um, in my basement, like surrounded by stuff and thinking, I don't know if I can do this. I mean, like I got what I w- thought I wanted, but I, I, I don't know if it's, if it's going to work. One of the things that was ringing in my ears was a conversation I had with one of my uncles at Christmas, right? We had family gathering and, and they know that I'm doing eBay for a business and he comes up and he's, you know, he's got his whiskey and he's like, yeah, I love eBay. He's like, I just order like a bunch of, bunch of comic books, coloring books from China, and I list it once, and I just ship it. And I'm so back to sitting on the floor in the basement, and I'm like, oh, it would be so much easier if. But my ethics and my integrity prevent me from being part of a problem that I had seen in the waste flow at the Goodwill outlet, where it was, there was so much, so much, so much. And I knew as I thought about my daughter and her future in that moment, and I, that was the piece that, it, like, it so clicked. I knew that if I decided to make it easier on myself and did the the comic book thing or the anything new thing um, just to make ends meet, that I would be doing her a disservice. And I had this vision of, like, being asked it, at some point down, down the road in the future, on my deathbed, you name it, right? What did you do? You know, how did you contribute? And um, And I realized that, if I could find um, value in the work that I was doing, and there was value, if I could if I could create that, then it was worth doing. And I could be happy with that. And I could toil in the basement because if there was purpose, um, it it was worth doing. And so um, that's where the where junkets, um, where the like the brand and the vision came from. It was, you know what, hey, if we can reduce demand for new manufacturing, there's value there. There obviously needs to be some sort of scale solution there, so I'm going to need to figure that out. So kind of knew that there would be barriers, but I also knew that I would be willing to allow this thing, whatever it was and whatever it was becoming, to grow for as long as it was helpful to people. It was really interesting because I think most people came to know Junket as a retail location, right? 
um, a place to shop for secondhand funky things and creative supplies and all those things. But for me, it wasn't necessarily about retail. It was about social change and about um, healing um, this bigger, broader um, societal things. Something that stood out to me is you said uh, the whole supposed to do track. Right. Right. And bucking that. Was there anything in particular that helped you see what was happening around the supposed to do's that helped you break out of it? Yeah. Well, quite honestly, the supposed to was I, I got married and I got married for good. I was committed to the marriage. I was committed to the relationship. And, um, and so the supposed to was, you get married, you raise your family, you do your thing. And it wasn't working out exactly like I had hoped to because I had negotiated to be a stay-at-home mom and that had not worked out, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and and yet, um, uh, so I thought I knew what was going to happen. And the end of my marriage combined with the little one, really just, it it shattered every single notion of what life was supposed to be. Um, and it was traumatic, and but it also led to so much healing. It ultimately actually was finding that the potential and the spark and that eureka in the um, in the business idea that shifted that for me. Um, but it also, I mean, it also required a certain willingness to acknowledge that that was a scavenging role and that was a, um, that there would be cultural, like, eyebrow raising about it. Um, and so for me, part of it was um, really seeing the benefit and I'm making this choice with intention. And, and because I'm making that, I think I can, sh- I can help other people see this differently. Mm-hmm. The house situation too, I find very interesting that mm-hmm. you intentionally ended up in a place that you saw a vision for to deploy as, okay, I can do this here. I can do that here. Yeah. How did that intentional choice lead you to the next step? I've always had a thing for real estate. I've been licensed as an, as an agent in the mm. past and bought my first place downtown before the condo boom um, in 1999, uh, bought my second place in 2001 and became a landlord at that time as well, moved out of the one into the next and saw how um, how assets could appreciate uh, far more quickly in, you know, in some cases than, um, than I could make money at my job. And so I learned a pretty early lesson about the value of um, making wise purchasing choices, right? Because it's not necessarily how much you sell it for. It's it's the right. It's the wise investment on the front end. I so I owned three different condos on the same corner by, by the time Meridel's um, Meridel was born, and um, and so had been landlording, et cetera, but understood how assets could be used um, to create passive income, sure. um, but. One of the things that had happened is that the the end of my marriage and the birth of my daughter took place at the same time as like lit, like literally two thousand end of two thousand eight. The market bottomed out, real estate tanked, everything was underwater, and so um, so I had properties downtown that I needed to, I couldn't I couldn't let go of, even as this marriage was ending and we were going through all this stuff. So I rented for a year and just was kind of you know and, and during the renting is when the the um, the selling of stuff had started. And I knew that as soon as the divorce was over, I needed to restabilize. And I, by the, by the time the divorce was over, I knew that I was running this business. I knew that the market was still really crappy. Um, so prices were really low, but I also knew that that wouldn't always be the case. And, um, and in my, um, 
prior life, I had loved, um, well before Airbnb showed up, I loved finding odd, out-of-the-way places. So, um, and Meryl's dad and I had traveled a fair amount and had stayed at B&Bs, and it was like, I would love to do that sometime. Yeah, I think betterbreakfast.com and whatever, Verbo, I was finding all of them, and like that was just one of my fascinating things. So... So I knew I knew what real estate could do for me, and I knew what, what I wanted to accomplish with it. Um, and I also knew that I was going to want multiple revenue streams. Um, mm. If I were, I didn't want to put all of my eggs in one basket, you know, if I left corporate. And that kind of goes against conventional wisdom in some regards. But I was looking at Airbnb being passive income. I actually did pick up my real estate license about six months before um, or six months into the self-employment piece of things, and, and that was helpful. And then... Um, and then the the dry basement for the clothing processing. I knew that it would it was an asset I could leverage in the short term, um, and that I could be patient with kind of a weird real estate trifecta thing going on until the market came back. And so, and the reason that that matters is that so three years ago, I actually over the course of the last few years, we have sold off the condos downtown, but uh-huh. um, but we sold one of the condos and I sold my house and turned the the returns on those um, into an investment. Um, where I own my home out right now. And it's, yeah. So, um, and the strategic shift there was I moved then from a, once I launched the shop, I no longer needed all of the space. Once the shop was running, I no longer needed to do Airbnb. Um, And so the three bedroom house was not a good fit for my daughter and I. And, um, and so again, as the market came back, it was, we made a very intentional decision to move into a two bedroom cooperative. And one of the things that I value so much about that coming together is I knew what I wanted. I knew I wanted small space. I knew I wanted simplicity. Um, I, I'd lived in condos downtown for, you know, over a decade. And I knew that that, that was a, a life that worked well for me. So, um, so did all of the digging in the neighborhood, found something that worked and, um, actually found, um, someone willing to sell because it wasn't on the market and, um, negotiated a deal where she actually got exactly what she wanted and I got exactly what I wanted. And so my house is one third of the size of what, of what that, the greenhouse was. Mm. I'm about 800 square feet. I don't have room for a ton of stuff. I can clean it up in one fell swoop if I, um, if I've got the energy to do so, or if I decide that I'm going to put my mind to it. Um, and Meridal has a grandma and an uncle pseudo upstairs. We've got a grandpa next door. We have this just lovely little community in the building that we've landed in. So I wanted to ask, so you said it was a co-op. Correct. And so then you mentioned the family members close by. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about the, the broader structure of that? Is yeah. it sort of a bigger building that it's, has different units? How does so it, what is a co-op it's, exactly? It's a, it's a fourplex. They're okay. kind of rare. If you think about like New York has got a lot of cooperative buildings, right? Um, so it's similar to a condo. But um, but the legal structure is different, and so um, and so when I say a grandpa, it's it's a neighbor, right? Um, Art has lived in the building off and on since he was twelve um, in nineteen forty eight, um, wow. and um, and Bev and Dave live upstairs, and they just they have become family, right? Got it. And so they're they're not yeah they're not blood relatives, they're just lovely humans, and um, we're so lucky to to be able to you know share space. So um, so what it means is that I am a part owner in that building. And then the and the unit is mine, but it's the ownership is a is a as a corporate structure as opposed to um, as opposed to having uh, like a, a unit ownership is again legal, but but it also really encourages like the the cohesion in the building, a lot of cooperative decision making. So if you think about other cooperative entities and organizations, it's really nice to um, be both accountable and able to benefit 
Mm. Right. I like that, you know, like we had dinner last night upstairs and um, it's nothing formal. It's basically a fourplex, but but you can make it what you wanted it to be, too. Yeah. I've heard of co-ops living situations in that some of the responsibilities are shared to you, some mm-hmm. of the joint decision-making, is yes. that the case? Yeah. Sort of that sort Absolutely. Of- yep. So yeah, I mean, I'll go home today and, and finish um, shoveling um, a bit of the, the snow that I probably should have taken care of late last night. But yeah, right? So we just, and, and other people take care of other things. I, I want to go back a little bit just to the business transition as we yes. move our way forward yes. from doing the eBay selling yep. to opening a storefront. Yes, Junk yes. it. Yes. What yes. was what was that like and what were some of the learnings that you went from this one situation to where there were obviously issues of scalability, et cetera, mm-hmm. to a store, mm-hmm. <laughs> a storefront? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what's funny is that um, that at the time was the least risky option, hmm. which is kind of crazy. But um, what I had, you know, I'd, I'd heard, I'd always read, you know, sign on for real estate as late as you possibly can, right? Because, you know, when you're starting something new, make, you know, do as much as you can until you bust out of the seams and, and like that, that actually not having real estate is the thing that holds you back. I had been selling stuff online. I had been hosting my people, right? Like, like had people coming in from all over the world and loved hosting and enjoyed, right? I called it a be no be. So I wasn't going to, I was going to make people breakfast, right? But it got to the point where I had so much stuff, right? So, and treasures that were accumulating and, um, Things that weren't a good fit for eBay, but they were valuable things. They were things that I was picking and finding in the waste room that weren't the things that I would list, but didn't deserve to get thrown away. So I started keeping those and, you know, I had a, like I had a, this mid-century low boy with nine drawers and one drawer had all of the candle holders and one drawer had all of the other things. And, you know, the, the, the wallets were in this one. And so it just, you know, and I was doing, you know, I was doing the occasional garage sale and all of the things, but it was hard to put everything away when we had guests coming to stay. And, you know, cause then it was harder to do the work cause you mentioned earlier being visual, I'm very visual. And so I'd like, if I don't see it, it's gone. So when it's behind the high boy drawer, I don't think about it. So a friend proposed that we do an actual vintage sale um, at my house. And that was like the summer, summer of 2012. And I was like, yeah, that'd be super fun. We would, we would totally have fun with that. And so we got it started and like started putting out some, some marketing materials. And I would say a week or two after starting to promote it, she's like, um, I'm nine weeks pregnant and I don't have the energy to do this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> well, I guess I'm, I guess I'm doing a vintage sale. And, um, and so that was like, it. W- I probably wouldn't have pulled it off on my own, but since it was there and it was out there, it was like, well, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do proof of concept. Mm. I, I'm going to put my all into this. And if it works and if I can drive, I think that I set a $3,000 revenue target for myself. If I can drive $3,000 worth of business to my house in a residential area in a weekend, that will be what, like that will give me the comfort I need to start looking for retail space where I could do that once a month. And so we'll just give it a shot. Made all the signs, got it all set up put it all out there. Um, I already had a social media following because I'd started that previously. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd, that had been, um, uh, you know, something I'd been enjoying. You know, I developed the brand, all those things. Like I was thinking big, right? The the grow as far as you want to. Yeah, we brought in about $300 shy of that target and I decided that was close enough. Yeah. Started kind of, you know, like, you know, envisioning where I might want to be. I valued not driving. I valued not spending time in a vehicle. I knew that I had, you know, I had worked and lived downtown for a lot of years and, and shared a car for a number of years. And so, um, I knew that the work that I was doing, it it was going to need to be close. Otherwise I wasn't going to want to go. And I also knew that from a, again, from a value standpoint, 
I wanted, I wanted to be in community and community is a value to me. And so, um, started looking around and sure enough, found a, found a random storefront four blocks from my house. And, um, a friend had tipped me off to the fact that it might actually be available. And so I sent a message to the dentist who owned the building and, Hey, here's my name. Here's the thing. Here's what I'm thinking. And, um, Got a call two days later, and he's like, yeah, come on over and check it out. And it was this random little tiny crappy little space, but it was it, – it held potential and the price was right. And we, you know, handshake deal, and he handed me a key, and uh, six weeks later, Junk, it was open. So, so – and the original plan was to just do um, one sale a weekend. Ease Emporium had – had just opened about six months prior, and she was doing two weekends a month. And um, and I knew her casually through um, garage sales and yada, yada, yada. And so and she'd been kind of pushing me to, she's like, you should do something, you should do something. So I just said, hey, you know, if we market together, you know, what would you think about, you know, like, would it be cool if I were open the same weekends that you are? And what if we were to, like, invite others to join us and we could have a corridor because there was the TNT paint shop and um, and the Danko building was um, somebody was buying there. We knew that. We didn't know who. Um, and and it was just like, well, what, what if we, like, there would be four, that's four of us, right? I mean, like, that that could be the beginning of a district. And so, um, and she was like, yeah, that's cool. So opened, did, you know, never was once a month, was twice a month to begin with. And um, and was once, was a single little storefront. And over the course of that year, we, you know, were like, yeah, you should join us. And by the end of the year, we had two more shops open. People would said, yeah, we want to be here. You know, like we want to open shops. We're like, you should do that here. And, you know, it's like when we collaborate, right, it makes sense. And when we encourage each other, it's win-win, especially in a sustainability-oriented business, right? Um, so vintage is, is un- right? It's, it's, it's unique. What's unique? It's, it's you want to go in and wander and actually see some things. And so we encouraged Tony, who now owns Turquoise Vintage, to pop up here. We talked to a couple others who wound up joining us. And so, and then about a, about it, you know, year in, I was like, I'm making a map. I'm just making a map. And so, right? <laughs> and so, like, like took up, you know, I, I had my, like, hack in design skills from way back when and like um just put together and I think I called it um, secondhand row and um and we just put a bunch of flyers out and and that was the first mini mile map and just kind of went from there so it's um, like it's the mini haha mile right right because correct. and it's so funny because this is in our neighborhood yep very close to where we live mm-hmm. uh, here in Minneapolis and I'm smiling over here because it's just it's so funny because if uh Starbucks right. opened across the street from a local coffee shop, yep. or if a competing coffee shop, I don't mm-hmm. know, uh, Caribou opened mm-hmm. across the street from Starbucks, mm-hmm. they would not be happy about it. Correct. And there, there's just this totally different energy. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing is like the underlying motivation of, sure, you need to make money, yep. you need to run a business, yep. but these are things that are being reused and brought back into the... Correct. Correct. And yeah. so there's this shared mission, which brings that kind of thing, which right. seems like I know a lot of yeah. people talk about yep. the mini haha mile yep. of going yep. to all these awesome vintage stores yep. and and checking them out over yep. the weekends, over yep. the you know. Yep. So the the energy there is totally different. Yeah. yeah. By, by design, right? We referred each other to each other, and hey, you know what? You're looking for X. You know the best place to go for that is this one. And hey, oh, you're looking for Y. I would try them or maybe these guys, right? So, and over the course of, you know, the last five years, by choosing to position it as a sustainability corridor instead of just vintage, that was deliberate too in terms of saying, hey, this is, you know, people like us make choices like these. 
Um, we don't want people who are paying attention to their footprint to have to drive all over looking for something. So ease of access, again, kind of going back to my original, like, let's make it easier. And hey, if we set it up that way, we can actually have a larger coalition too, because we've got um, uh, AEI, is a, they do like green remodeling, and we've got Moon Palace Books, and they've got secondhand books, and they're a really progressive entity. And we've got, um, you know, there, was, there were several, and we, we realized we had like a dozen different businesses that in some way, shape, or form, they were sustainable in, in their own right, right, in different ways. So that was neat. Um, I think that maybe the biggest win um, and feather in our caps was actually when Habitat for Humanity decided to open a restore on Minnehaha. Um, and attributed our work as um, as why they had made that choice. Interesting how this that influence can start a whole thing. Sometimes mm-hmm. I think it's really easy to feel like we can't do it's just we're just one person, right. and we can't really do that much, right. even when it comes to starting a business, when it comes right. to starting a thing. But it's yeah. interesting, even with Break the Twitch, I've seen similar things where. I'll be talking about something and other people will be influenced and want to start their own blogs and different things and start mm-hmm. talking about it themselves. And that's just amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really is important to remember that we can influence things much greater than ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's powerful, in fact. So, so yeah. you, you mentioned sustainability, and I yes. know that, that that is a big driving factor of mm-hmm. what you do mm-hmm. and, and what motivates you to continue on with mm-hmm. this mission. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about what you've learned about sustainability, and I know you're really into the whole idea of the product life cycle. Yes, yep. How has that sort of influenced you, and and what have you learned about that throughout your your journey of your business? During the time of running this business, I made a couple strategic decisions that um, based on how I thought about things. One was to be a for-profit entity. Um, And the reason that I chose to be for-profit, or two reasons actually, one was if we're going to scale this, it needs to be profitable, right? If we're going to get investment, it needs to be profitable. The second reason was that most players in that realm are nonprofits. And so what that means is that they are able to offer tax write-offs to people for donating things. So people feel good about donating the things, right? Um, and they're and they are able to take advantage of obviously other bits and pieces. But the risks in that that I saw were that we as as people who were donating our things, um, understood that to be a good thing. I mean, the government's supporting it, right? These organizations are saying, yay, you're doing a good thing. And what we didn't see and what we don't understand is that um, so much of what we donate becomes waste. And that hit home for me in a way that that I don't think it would have otherwise if I hadn't found myself in that waste stream right after the end of my marriage, trying to find clothing that fit and realizing how much gets thrown away. Um, And I think that we have been, we've been misled. You know, we are at a point right now where companies tell us that, you know, this product, this new product is, is green and eco-friendly and hey, you can help the planet by doing this other thing with this thing. And and no one is saying um, when you donate your things that a lot of it's actually going to get thrown away. We are not taught how to organize our things in such a way that they can have a future life. We don't understand that things that already exist are embodied energy, right? When products are made, um, they are made using limited global resources. Um, and, you know, I don't know how many factories are actually solar yet, right? So their their fossil fuels are being used in ma- manufacturing these things. Um, and and so the faster they get thrown away, the the more we've wasted in terms of global resources, et cetera. And, and so it struck me that by choosing to be a for-profit entity, I could have, a, I could have these conversations with people when they 
came and because we would re- we would receive things. I, w- I was not willing to buy things and not because I was cheap, but because there was so much out there that there was no need to. And so by focusing on wanting to help people who wanted to be good stewards to their things and not throw them away, by focusing on things that might have gotten thrown away at a Goodwill because there was maybe a little bit of damage, but it was like these beautiful old pieces that had character and patina, right? By choosing to focus on um, the integrity of the pieces and the history, we could have conversations about why that mattered. And so people came to value us for being able to keep grandma's this out of, you know, out of the trash. Some of the other conversations was, no, we, you know, we won't, we won't um, give you a tax write-off, though, either, because we um, we understand what happens. We want to be able to, ha- you know, be honest with you about the likelihood that things will stay out of the trash, et cetera. Um, so, and I guess the reason that I mentioned that is that over the course of five years, we became well-known for being willing to take things. We became a destination in that regard. Um, but I also encountered so many different understanding levels, both in terms of um, how we responsibly get rid of things and how we responsibly accept things, right? And it got to the point where we realized that people think they're doing a good thing when they drop things off, you know, and and some have a better understanding of that than others. Um, but I came to be, you know, like, especially as, um, as Me Too, the Me Too hashtag Me Too took off, really started to become clear on the notion of consent and the notion of consent when it comes to um, an exchange of goods mm-hmm. or materials or content, right? Do you agree to receive this thing? Do you, right? Is that gift actually useful to you, right? In our case, we started putting signs up that said, you know, like, leaving things outside of our building is BS, right? Please don't. And then Were we would, people doing that? We would come in and find a broken dresser. And it was, you know, maybe it was a 1950s dresser, but yeah, broken. And by the time, you know, it'd been there overnight, waterlogged. And so we were really on the receiving end of so much garbage, despite our efforts to educate, despite our efforts to help people understand. And yeah, it happened regularly. And, and sometimes they were s- sweet little treasures and people were spot on. But a lot of other times, you know, like waterlogged upholstery, like not, right? I felt like it felt like sometimes it started feeling like an assault over years, right? And it was just like, we need to do something about this. And so like I literally, I spent about 45 minutes one morning after walking in to find like, like all of these piles of books just sitting outside our door. And I'm like, okay, we got to do this. And I just, I kind of put together this manifesto, right? And it's just like, hey, where I landed was um, that, you know, we are responsible for the full life cycle of our things, right? Of the things we allow into our lives. And it really does come down to agency. The exchange of goods is is about communication, right? About offering and receiving, right? It's a two-way and you, it's got to be two-way. I mean, if you think about, uh, you know, you you guys don't have kids, but I think about all of uh, my friends who have, you know, who talk about a mother-in-law who like, like just like buys all this plastic crap for Christmas. And they've been like, please don't, please don't. Can you please stop buying? And the, and the, and the, you know, the grandparents don't get it. They're like, why? What's the harm? What's the whatever? <sighs> mm-hmm. It's about consent. Consent. It's about, right? Consent. It's become really clear that that, that matters across so many of the pieces of our lives, right? Being responsible for the full life cycle means understanding where it's coming from. If you buy it new, are you, you're, you know, have you, have you like internalized the fact that you're taking responsibility for having created demand for something that is going to be produced using fossil fuels, that is going to be produced potentially using, um, you know, um, child labor that is going to be produced, right? That, that you're, by creating that demand, there's, there's ownership there, right? And then um, during the use phase, are you responsible, you know, are you taking responsibility for that? Um, and then when you decide that you're done, 
what happens then? We're responsible for the the outcome or the the end game for that that thing that we decide to let go. And so I think about the men's game and and I think it's so I mean I think it's so healing to be thoughtful about the things that we allow in and the things that we allow out. I think there's a pretty radical shift to say, okay, so these things I've chosen to let go, now what? Where do they go from here? Where do they go from here? You know, in the case of some things, you know, and, and I think it's one of those things where you have to just kind of like, just like, it's a reset button. You're like, okay, I've got all, I've got all this stuff that I've accumulated without knowing or recognizing this account like this accountability shift. So I'm going to have to do some work, right? Or I'm going to have to just be aware of it as I do the work, right? I might still choose to send it to the Goodwill or the whatever. I might still, you know, it might still go in the recycling. But I get to start thinking about where it goes. Is there somewhere that could value it? Could it be useful? Um, and by starting to think about it on the back end, it makes you a more thoughtful consumer on the front end, right? So, hey, that thing is, it's cute, right? But do I want to deal with trying to find someone to take it later? How long is it going to be useful to me? Am I able to find it, you know, in another situation? It, you know, those are the questions, right? So it's just that has radically shifted my, my how I engage with things, right? I mean, I had gone, I mean, I've been a reuse shopper for a long time. That became even more important to me when I realized um, that when you buy something that already exists, you don't take responsibility for the upstream emissions. You don't take responsibility for any child labor. What you're doing is you're choosing to take responsibility for the remainder of the life cycle. And there's something that feels really good about that, right? So instead of feeling second class for taking something secondhand or for like having it be the thing that you, you did when you were a kid because your family was poor, it instead becomes something that it's the most ethical decision possible to choose the things that already exist, mm -hmm. right? So, and um, given where things have gone with our production cycles and the manufacturing and, and the, the hyper, um, you know, we definitely have the bespoke handcrafted thing going, but so much is made so cheaply that in a lot of cases, the things that already exist are far higher quality anyway. So that's where I come at it. The men's game, as yeah. you referred to, or the, the minimalist game is yep. the full name of it, yep. uh, where you get rid of one thing on the first day, two things yeah. on the second day. It's a decluttering yep. game. Exactly. Right? Yep. For those that may not be familiar. And that was one of the most powerful things for me yeah. in terms of reducing incoming stuff Correct. as well. Yeah. yeah. Because all of a sudden I had to deal face to face mm -hmm. with the things mm -hmm. I owned yeah. and had brought into my life already. Yes. Yep. And all of a sudden that stuff became, well, now that I'm looking at it head on yeah. and now that I'm dealing with it yep. head on, yep. where is this going to go? Right. And, and so all of a sudden... I'm not perfect, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, I still buy stuff. I oh, still, course. you know, yeah. when it comes to gear, different things. Yeah. But there's a substantial increase mm -hmm. in the thought process of I know where I know how this goes. Yes. When I don't need this anymore or when it becomes excess. Correct. Then what? There's yeah. more there's more feeling of attachment to Correct. The whole yeah. deal. Yeah, you got it. Yep, and you so, got it. Yeah. So that's just one of the ways I've found. In fact, I have a I just did a video uh, that will be out by the time this comes out, but okay. uh, about impulse spending and oh, yeah. ways to address different mm -hmm. forms of impulse spending and mm -hmm. just the intentionality that comes when you start addressing mm -hmm. the things you already have yes. and seeing 
There are five options, maybe. Donate it mm-hmm. is an option. Mm-hmm. Try to sell it. Yep. You can recycle it, yep. which is, again, you have to burn energy mm-hmm. to recycle stuff. Mm-hmm. It's still using mm-hmm. energy you got it. again. Yep. yep. Or you can trash it. Mm-hmm. You can give it to a friend, maybe, that might yep. need it. But yep. other than that, right. that's it. Yeah. It's all going to go somewhere. Yeah. Yep. And 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 our um, capitalism does not create the supply chains of the systems for reintegration mm-hmm. just doesn't exist. So speaking yeah. of capitalism, I, I wanted to mention too, just because you brought that up, uh-huh. I, I love that it is a for-profit business. Yeah. A previous podcast guest, Thompson Adarin Comey, uh, is mm-hmm. running a healthcare startup, obviously okay. a for-profit, yeah. because he thinks and believes that capitalism is currently mm-hmm. the best way to mm-hmm. actually make substantial change. Mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. the, in the market and in, mm-hmm. in the economy and in mm-hmm. the, the way that we do things. Yeah. And having worked for a nonprofit, mm-hmm. uh, Nice Ride, the bike share mm-hmm. for three yeah. years, yeah. I, was, I, was, you know, I was the marketing director there for three years, and there was substantial impact created by that system through the nonprofit. But mm-hmm. I also saw the difficulty that came with needing to constantly be raising funds Correct. for the nonprofit, yeah. to constantly be focusing on different elements other than yeah. the mission yes. and just the bottom line. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I applaud yeah. that. I oh. think it's a, it seems to me like I, I fully agree with what mm-hmm. you're doing with what Thompson has talked about, that we can use our modern mm-hmm. structures of capitalism to mm-hmm. serve our underlying mission effectively. Absolutely. Um, I And I agree. I will also say that right now I believe that to a certain extent we're coming up short um, and that we've got much bigger problems that need solutions that may involve patient capital, right? Hey, mm-hmm. you know what? It's not going to produce a return in two years. Right. And if I'm an impact investor and I really am concerned about the impact and not just the ROI, I should be looking at some of these longer term, more complex solutions and investing there yeah. and, um, and doing it um, because it's the right thing to do. Not because it's going to be a pocketbook thing. So I, I, while I operate within the system, I also have, I I feel like because I operate within it, I can critique it too, right? Mm -hmm. So it it is a pretty relentless system in that it doesn't matter sometimes how good the idea is if an audience isn't ready. um, That can be challenging too. Gosh, but we've got a system and, and people understand the system. And so when I think about the system, I think about how could Junket... How, how could we integrate into the existing systems um, within capitalism, right? How could we perhaps help create runway for retailers when it comes to, to um, carbon-informed um, commerce? Because that's one of the things that we get really good at. Um, you know, I used the shop as a, basically R&D, right? I wanted to understand what were the human barriers to shopping secondhand? What were the barriers to very specific types of products? Um, but I think the the biggest thing that I came to understand was thanks to, um, to a friend who the first time he came through the shop, he was like, this is awesome. He's like, you got all of these small things and it's so well organized and people have been trying to crack this nut because we know from an environmental standpoint it needs to happen. Um, so like, he's like, wow. And it was like, yay. And as he as he walked out and like put the coffee mug down and was on his on his way out the door, he's like, "So how are you going to measure it?" Huh. So so he just happened to be a consultant um, that dealt with um, carbon emissions and was working on you know working with other businesses to help them document and map that and and we decided to to um, go ahead and do that at Junket. 
Um, and where most organizations, um, you know, historically, and I would say at this point too, are trying to figure out how to do less bad, right? How do we get our carbon emissions down? How do, right? How, you know, gosh, we don't want to like, let's not be honest get, about it's this. It's like the goal is to get to neutral. Right. And where most organizations are going top down, they're saying, hey, you know what? We've got, you know, we, you know, Better Futures is a great example. Fabulous organization. They deconstruct houses. And so they said, hey, you know what? If a house is made out of this, 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 and this, and we are able to recapture, you know, 80% of the materials for resale, you know, what does that look like? So they're saying top down. And in my case, I'd been trying to figure out, um, again, back to that scale question, how do you solve for um, for small things at scale. Paper clips. How could we organize paper clips in such a way that, you know, they could find their way onto an end cap at Target, right? Or that, or right? So like scale and, and mass and volume. And, and, um, and so when I was challenged to measure it, I said, I want to start with paper clips. Let's measure paper clips. Because if we can figure it out for paper clips, we can probably figure it out for a lot of other things. So, um, through that work, what I found and through my research, what I learned was that so um, so paper clips are made out of steel. The EPA has um, what they call warm factors, which um, is a list of data that says, hey, if you make, you know, if you make a, a ton of if you manufacture a ton of steel cans, you know, here's the here's the carbon dioxide emissions factor. If it's virgin materials, here's the carbon dioxide emissions factor. If it's 100% recycled, which we had talked about recycled a little bit earlier, and that's there's some correlation, some information there. But what I learned was that so paper clips. I mean, we don't really pay a whole lot of attention to them, right? Right? They're Where do they go? They're paper clips. Right. Exactly. So they're made out of steel, and um, according to the Atlantic, um, Americans buy 11 billion paper clips a year. 11 billion paper clips. Yes. With a B. With a B, right? Every year. Okay. 11 billion paper clips at a half a gram a piece is 5,500 tons of steel manufactured into paper clips every year for Americans. Right? I'm trying to process these numbers right, right? now. <laughs> right. 5,500 5, tons of steel. So the other number that becomes large by comparison is the carbon dioxide emissions of New paper clips. Paper clip production. Paper clip production emissions every year is, um, if we were to give the paper clip manufacturers credit for 100% recycled steel, which um, they do not use, it's uh, still 10,000 tons of carbon dioxide just to make paper clips, mm. right? Virgin steel would be closer to 15,000. And at 15,000 tons of carbon dioxide emissions, you could drive your car around the planet almost 1,500 times. Combustible engine. Yeah. Right? And so what that – learning that and understanding how small things add up to big impact um, really brought me – that's what brought me back into, oh, my gosh, we have to shift our behaviors. We need to understand what that impact is. If a paperclip has that much impact, think of everything else. Right. That's what's troubling me in this moment <laughs> right now sitting here yeah. because yeah. I'm trying to think of the last time I even thought about a paperclip. Yeah. We haven't bought paperclips in a long time, but, yep. you know, you buy the pack yeah. of them and yeah. then they sit in the drawer and you yeah. use them over yeah. time potentially. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just so small mm -hmm. and it's fascinating that that is such a big – Right. And it makes total sense. Yeah. Hmm. It's just the small things multiplied by habits – yeah. Add up quickly, especially when multiplied by 325 million people. Let's let's stay on the paper clips for a second. Mm -hmm. And 
and go, okay, so you started with paper clips. Mm-hmm. Have you come up with a way to organize them or sort them? Like, is there, what can we do about yeah. paper clips? Isn't that good? Um, I actually, I mean, I have an entire, I have an entire rollout concept for that. And if anybody wants to work with me to, to like make it happen, I'd be totally down with it. Um, but it's bigger than just me. So for now, you know, when Junket, Junket, um, we closed our retail this last year and moved into a warehouse. Um, I felt like, you know, we, I mean, we, Things never really came back the way I needed them to after three years of road construction on Minnehaha, right? So, um, so it it made sense to to move. And when we um, were given an opportunity to to join um, actually Better Futures again, um, to join them and sublease some warehouse space, it was like, you know what? This is the next phase. So there's a receiving dock there. There is right there. Um, they've got more materials. They've got the larger materials to our smaller materials. And it's like, yeah, this feels like the next step. And so, um, so the last you know, six months have been about establishing a solid online platform. And um, that online platform um, is inherently ethical. We're doing commerce, we're modeling commerce the way it should be. And when I say that, it's from a carbon informed standpoint, we're saying, hey, you know, you can buy paper clips on our website. And they're secondhand paper clips, which means that you don't take in the emissions, right? But they will also come to you via secondhand packaging because we are not going to create new packaging, right? One interesting data point, it's analysis that I've run after I, I saw somebody on um, on Twitter complaining about how Amazon won't publish its carbon footprint. And I, and I tend to get like, like when I get worked up about something, I'm like, you know what? Let's figure out what we can figure out. And, and, and so using publicly available data, I was able to extrapolate that just the cardboard boxes that Amazon ships out, there's about... 4.5 million tons of carbon dioxide emissions per year generated just in the empty boxes. Just empty boxes. That's the empty boxes. Without any of the stuff that's actually getting shipped. Correct. Correct. And and that number was something that I ran using conservative, saying, hey, only 10% of them go on an airplane, right? Mm-hmm. That was saying, hey, those boxes, there isn't a single one of those boxes that is larger than um, eight inches on any side. Oh, Okay. Wow. We I the we gave them we gave them credit for cons, you know conservative shipping. I wanted the I wanted the numbers to be beyond reproach, and I wanted like if the numbers were to get out for people like for Amazon to be like, oops, we're not going to say anything because we know it's worse, right? It's so worse than that. so yeah. so um so and I guess so so the reason that that matters is that with our website, we're choosing to use carbon as um, as the baseline for our business decisions and our operation, our operating decisions. And that's where capitalism comes in again, is that right now capitalism only focuses on the bottom line financially, and it's not taking concern with the, the social externalities or the environmental externalities. And those are the pieces that I'm really focused on um, integrating. So our, our model and our platform, so it is secondhand packaging. It's also ground shipping only. Mm-hmm. Because when you put things on planes, the emissions like from on a, like a shipping and transport, it's uh, 10 times the emissions on a plane than on the ground. So if you so and that's just for for your your audience, it's good to know that like if you're shopping prime, you know, two day prime, the two day is actually a bigger problem than a lot of the other pieces in that. If you if you can be patient and embrace slow shipping and have it come to you on the ground, you're making a better choice. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, and you're making an even better choice yet if you say, hey, you know what, I'm actually going to find some little guy on eBay or on Etsy and make my purchase from them instead because of the way that the systems have been set up without regard for emissions. So are we getting uncomfortable again? I'm oh, sorry. no. Yeah, no. That's, <laughs> uh, this, this perfectly speaks to the 
the the twitch the break yeah. break the twitch yeah. it yeah. perfectly speaks to how right now the the friction is being removed yes. from all of the major processes that that we're involved with on a day-to-day basis correct and the fact of the matter is it takes more a little more time yeah. to go to eBay and find yes. a seller. Yep. It takes a little bit more effort to mm-hmm. seek out something that is mm-hmm. not in the default, the yes. action we are being programmed yes. to do. Yes. And, yes. and part of uh, all of this is finding a way to take a step back, mm-hmm. whether it's with shopping or mm-hmm. whether it's with travel or whether it's mm-hmm. with... Yeah. Any aspect of of our lives. Right. And observing it and going, okay, this is what's become the path of least resistance by design. But is there a better way to do this that I can be a little more patient for? Mm -hmm. Because increasingly it just seems like everything in our lives, the most successful organizations Mm -hmm. in the world are Mm -hmm. the ones that are able to give us what we want Mm -hmm. instantly. And that's not going to change, you know, yeah. until uh, I'm always reminded of this quote from the, the book Hooked. Okay. It's, it's a book about designing addictive smartphone applications. Yes. So it's oh. from a developer side. Mm-hmm. And I found it fascinating because I wanted to understand from a break the Twitch perspective, yes. the other side of how do we uh, deconstruct that. Yes. And the quote is, okay. it is more effective to reduce the effort required for the mm-hmm. end user to do something than to increase their motivation to do it. You know, we can market all we want mm-hmm. to try to increase someone's motivation to buy a thing mm-hmm. or to do a thing. Mm-hmm. But oh. it's more, yeah. even more effective if we yeah. can just make it super, super low effort to yeah. do. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's a race to the bottom of the barrel. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. Like that. Yeah. There's no. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's, and, and it, and it's also a race to, um, it, it feeds addictions and it, fe- and it feeds the cultural narcissism that, that we have in America, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, when I think about it, and I just used an, a word that gets used quite a bit when I say narcissism, right? And typically we think about that as um, people who are vain or think so much of themselves. But um, but when I look at it and look at it from almost a pathological standpoint, we're conditioned to desire. We're conditioned, you know, and it's and it's and I want that thing. I want that thing. I want you know the emotional the emotional want of that thing. But think about how once you have it, unless you've decided that there's an actual purpose for it, once you've got it, if you're not being intentional about it, the likelihood that you're going to devalue that thing and then like discard it, right? That's that's how we've been trained to consume. And that is, when you think about narcissistic relationships, that's how people who are like narcissistic personality disorder, that's how they engage with other humans. Yeah. Like adore, adoration, yes. and yes. then Discard. discard yeah so yep so and devalue too so like so i so you know love 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 it right and just all of the all of the you know and then like you know now that now that now that possession now that i have you you don't mean as much to me and and you know and in those relationships a lot of times it's like devalue and then like how do i get it gone mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yuck but but think about the american dream you can have it all it's not yeah. about community right so we're so conditioned to to want these things and 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 bred to believe that that's what you're supposed to do that we don't even see it in each other when it's manifesting we don't understand it we don't have language to really talk about it and the language we do have we use incorrectly which i just think is is fascinating right so the flip side is that um if you can get off of that hamster wheel right and decide that instead of buying things that you're going to 
like step back and and figure out what's saying, hey, why am I buying this thing? It actually becomes creative problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I love it because it's just like, oh, hey, I need to go buy this thing. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What am I trying to accomplish? Do I have what I need? Do I, could I solve it in a different way? You know, you know, do I, like my drain, do I need to go buy the drain thingy? Or like could literally a paperclip help me take care of it, right? I mean like, so it's, and, and so in the creativity piece, so many people say that they're not creative and really it comes down to, we've been taught not to problem solve. Because there's a one click solution for everything. That there's a, a specific mm-hmm. thing that you can mm-hmm. buy that's made out of mm-hmm. a long piece of plastic and you right. stick it down the drain and pulls the hair out. Yeah, exactly. And you use it once a year. Yeah. Maybe. Exactly. You know what? And some of those are really effective, right? Yeah. But like, but but for everyone that's like super effective, there are also like 37 others as seen on TV that may or may not work. And that probably like by the time you've used it once, you're like, you gross and it goes in the garbage, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's, yeah, it's mindset. So, um, and actually while we're talking about that, because like think of the, all of the, the investment and the energy and the money making that goes into designing those pieces and things, right? Kind of going back to the fact that production and um, emissions, basically if, if a product doesn't have a cord or a motor, close to if not 100% of the emissions generated during the entire life cycle of that product, like most of them happen during that production phase. The, what's worth knowing is that if you're going to launch a business right now, if you want to be a product designer, if you think you're going to go out on a limb and make this thing and it's going to, you know, you're going to sell, you know, hundreds of them or thousands of them and you're just going to like have it manufactured in China and put them forward, your business is not future-proofed. Carbon emissions, if they're not built into a new business right now, into like carbon pricing, et cetera, um, not going to be super successful. So that's just my little nugget of like hmm. when people are like, hey, yeah, I got this idea for this. It's like, okay, well. You know, for the businesses that are running, they should be thinking about about what that looks like. Um, and for businesses that are thinking that they're going to start and have this fabulous idea, should really give some serious thought to um, their long term goals for the project and incorporate that piece. It is interesting just looking at the landscape as a whole mm-hmm. and seeing the move towards I think it's called greenwashing. Yes, where new products are in cornstarch packaging mm-hmm. and they're biodegradable. Which is like great. I guess it's be- it's mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. than it would be otherwise. Mm-hmm. But there's still the entire life cycle of that thing from ideated mm-hmm. to designed mm-hmm. to the manufacturing mm-hmm. plates being set mm-hmm. up to mm-hmm. make the mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that then yeah. gets the thing made, and then yeah. gets shipped, and then it's yep. the whole oh, thing is totally. still happening. Right. And right. it's still yeah. And, and when it's done. If it's getting recycled or composted, it's still being downcycled, right? right? A lot of the work that needs to happen right now is we need to radically shift. You know, I mean, circular design is something that's being, um, you know, it's getting, a, there's a lot of buzz around circular design. But when I think about what corporations are doing around circular design, it's, hey, I'm going to make this piece that we're going to put into this new computer. And it's a new piece, but it can be used again in a second iteration or a third iteration or fourth iteration. And while I laud the fact that it's happening, I'm not sure that, you know, like that you can really call it circular if it has to get thrown away once before it goes into a second product, right? Um, When I think about truly circular design, we should be working with the things that already exist and figuring out how to reintegrate them effectively, right? And it's a different mindset and it's a different approach. um, And it doesn't involve just quickly making widgets. Or maybe it involves taking things that you can find in volume 
and creating some sort of manufacturing where you can use the material as is rather than burning it first or chopping it into pieces first or what have you. So, and that's what, for me, that's what reuse is about is best and highest mm-hmm. use of something as it already exists. Um, recognizing that best and highest use will be different, um, you know, for different, different things, right? It does give me some hope thinking about the limitations of human interaction with technology and things mm-hmm. like that, where at a certain point, our eyes cannot see more pixels, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. a phone getting mm-hmm. denser and denser and denser with pixels, the mm-hmm. newest phones, for example, the newest iPhones or yep. whatever, the yep. ga- Samsung Galaxies, yeah. the pixels are so dense that you literally cannot see them. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. a certain peak right now that I think where we're hitting with tech, mm-hmm. where we're not seeing a massive increase in resolution. We're not seeing right. it that, that would matter. Right. That would actually, right. we don't need right. a 4K phone right? because it's so small. Yeah. We just don't yep. need that many pixels. Totally. And our eyes won't even be able to see it. Right. So there are certain upward limitations mm-hmm. around tech that mm-hmm. I think are now affecting Apple. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they're saying, you know, people aren't buying their newest phones as much yeah. and yeah. they're starting to taper off because yeah. the age of that yes. is starting to hit. Yeah. And I don't know how that's going to affect things long term, but it is interesting yeah. to think about that call quality, mm-hmm. everyone's content at yep, this point exactly. with, with how a person yep. sounds pretty much through the, the earbud. Yes. So there's not going to be some big thing. Correct. The screen, yep. I think, is limited by our own eye. The, those only get, you know, I'm forgetting what they're called, but like the... The, the ocular yeah. receptor. Yeah, exactly. Or the yeah. cones yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the cones yeah. or whatever. I mean, those can only get so closely together too, right? So right. yeah. Anyway. So. And so all these things I do think will sort of reach a point where it, we're, we're seeing already where people, I have an iPhone 6S still. Me too. Yes. <laughs> so I still have my 6S right? and, yeah. and it, I've had no reason to upgrade it. Correct. Sure. The camera's better on the new iPhones. The screen is denser, but yeah. overall I already want to use my phone less right. than I do. Right. And so how would buying a newer, yeah. more beautiful, yeah. like yeah. integrated thing make right. Help me. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that because one, it's the social thing, having the thing, right? The early adapters and the, and the, that's an, that's an emotional mm-hmm. choice, right? It's not a, it's not an actual need-based choice. Um, the other thing to bring it back to paper clips is that the, um, the carbon dioxide emissions factor for steel is, um, is 3.06 for virgin steel. The carbon dioxide emissions factor for tech, for electronic devices is more than 50 Right, so yeah. 50 pounds of carbon dioxide emissions for every pound of product that we purchase. If you don't have to buy a new one, that feels good. That's a good, real environmentally. That's a really good choice. And if, for example, you mm. were to need a new one, choosing an eight instead of a ten is a much better choice because it already exists. Yeah. So, um, and so tech tech can be harder to find secondhand, but tech from a like buy your stuff wisely and think it through um, is important. I really do think with tech that we are reaching a point where battery technology is holding us back in terms totally. of the next yeah. major leap. Yeah. Uh, Cause that hasn't changed yeah. a ton since yeah. in the last decade or yes. two. Right. Yeah. Uh, there have been some advances, but the things that we have are pretty much getting to be the best yeah. that yeah. we need for what that is right now in its current form. And there's going to be some other weird, crazy technology that I don't know about yet. Right. That will push the next thing forward, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But it does give me some hope that at this point, it seems like the tech is getting so good that there's not like software that it can't run at this point Correct. or like yeah. 
except for the highest of high end, maybe if you're at Disney designing, uh, you know, 3D, you need the best of the best of the best. But other than that, it just about runs everything. So obviously minimalism and decluttering, as I mentioned, have had a big impact on my own process when when it comes to consumption and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And right now tidying up uh, from Marie Kondo (laughs) is, is a huge very popular series on Netflix. And so it's getting more and more attention on top of her. I think she sold like 10 million copies of her book, uh, which is crazy. But how has that influenced? I know there's some tie in and how has that influenced uh, what you're doing? And and have you adapted that in some way? Mm -hmm. I did um, purchase Marie Kondo's book about four years ago, right as I was thinking about downsizing. I had I'd always had a fairly fluid relationship with things. And obviously, once I started the store, if I was done with something, it went to it went to junk. That was easy, right? I had my I built in the solution. So I didn't have to take the stuff to the Goodwill or Savers or whatever. And using the book and her strategy, I spent about six months downsizing and preparing for the move that that I eventually took. Um, and what I found was, um, one, the strategy was really helpful right? Hey, pull, you know, take all of your books and put them all in the middle of the floor, right? I mean, and she's ruthless. She says, you know, like, like if you get done with your books and you've gotten rid of your books and you're down to your 30 books, right? Um, And you realize that you forgot two boxes of books in the attic. Well, clearly they weren't important enough to you, so get them gone. The piece of the book that disturbed me was the references to just throwing it away. I tend to, I spend just a fair amount of time in my head. And as I was kind of thinking through this, I'm like, how could this be helpful? And what I realized as I, you know, as I, um, got the stuff that I wasn't keeping ready for junket, um, I realized that that was actually a really good process for organizing not only the things you were going to keep, but for easily organizing the things you were going to pass along. And that if it was easily organized and you had three boxes of books instead of like the random whatever's from everywhere, right, or you cleaned out this room and shoved it all in there or whatever, if it was well organized, it was easier to, to like, you could actually find an organization that could benefit from books specifically, right? Um, and so, for example, the Women's Prison Book Project is an organization locally that offers, you know, that they collect books and they get them into the prisons. And they definitely have some things that are not appropriate content, but for the most part, right? Like, you, yeah, no, weapons building's not going to be okay. Um, but But a lot of the content is great. And so it was really cool to realize that her process could be adapted really easily to taking the things at the end of their time with you and ushering them forward in a way that respected the materiality, that respected um, community and, and need, and, and that, um, that engaged communication to say, hey, is this helpful? And that was the piece that like, I, I do advocate for, um, for Marie's process for that reason, is that um, if, you, if you go into the process with intention and knowing that you're not just going to shove it out, if you like, if you, energetically you say these things have value and I'm going to help them find this new place, it takes that process to a whole new level, like almost spiritually, right? Hey, I'm going to help do this. And that feels good, right? This is all of, like, I think we've been so conditioned to feel exhausted by our stuff. We have not been taught to manage it. We are really crappy materialists because we accumulate it and we don't organize it, right? So if we can engage differently, right? Take a deep breath and hey, and 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 imagine how these things could do good going out into the world. Um, it makes the process that much more enjoyable, right? And that is the thing that doesn't happen when you send your stuff to a big box necessarily, right? Um, and even when you do, you know, even even sending books to the big box, they're going to have a much likelier time of 
landing on the sales floor if they're organized as books. Right. Right. So it really comes down to being a good steward and then to, and then being able to celebrate that rather than feeling like crap about what we know about that system and the fact that it's not working for us right now. In your experience yeah. running uh, the store yeah. and, and with everything you know, yeah. what might you recommend? What advice would you give to people broadly or mm. specifically when it comes to this kind of stuff yeah. that they should be donating, the things that maybe should not be donated, mm-hmm. and just general advice around that? First is to recognize it's going to take some work because our systems aren't set up to support it. Okay. So um, second, I think it becomes a political issue where you can ask questions. Um, Third, I have some thoughts on even like, this is is even further upstream, but like if the product comes in packaging, it's okay to leave the packaging at the store. Like, right. So like preventing it on the front end. But when it comes to the downstream, do some research, do some Googling, right. In, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, um, Junket maintains a list, but we, you know, we have a list online of um, and we've got it sorted by the things. So like books are, you know, can be taken by this organization. You know, plastic bags are great for listening house. They serve a they serve a population that's experiencing homelessness, but they are not an overnight shelter. They're a day service center. People need things to hold things in. They also run a uh, they also take socks because they run a sock laundry program. Right. Again. So if you can plug into the organize like into local organizations and understand what they need and what they use, that's a good way to do it. I recommend doing that research before you launch a, your minimalism, like your, your downsizing effort or the Marie Kondoing thing, um, so that you can figure out who takes what, put the names and the products on the boxes, right? So, hey, I know that Animal Humane Society in, in Minneapolis, you know, in the Minneapolis area, I know that they take everything from, um, heating pads for the for the like infant kitties and right yeah. like so right yeah. they take the heating pads they take they take Ziplocs so that they can part out food they accept carrots and um, and Cheerios because they've got you know rabbits and birds they I mean like right I mean like they've got all of these different things that they could accept um, cleaning supplies if you're doing a, a massive downsize if you're doing you know I mean I actually actually offer a class for boomers like on ethical downsizing and like if you're doing that it makes a lot of sense to begin with the end in mind and plan for good results and give yourself the time, right? It might even make sense to partner up with a few friends that have the same mission, right? So, hey, divide and conquer. We know that this organization will take these things. This will take these, da-da-da. But why would we all drive to this place and this place and this place and this place? So I think there's a lot to be said for community building around getting the things to the right place. So, and at Junket, we're working on some, you know, how can we... How can we support communities so that these things can come in in organized ways? You know, can we put labeled coffee cans at community centers where people can drop off their the paper clips, the rubber bands, the whatever, right? So the things that we know that we want that it doesn't make sense to drive all over to, to the way to do whatever or whatever. But it, I think it really does come together with this like social aggregation um, and building relationships around it and choosing to value the things in the first place. It's not here yet, but I mean, when I think about, you know, what Junket was doing, in terms of providing a service and providing that organization and redistribution, um, that's something that if that existed in community, in other communities, in you know, at scale, and people could come together and participate in that way, cooperative ownership or what have you, I think that that's a pretty powerful future-looking solution. But it takes people that want that to make that happen. None of this stuff is is super fast. Uh, no. Unfortunately, no. the the incoming part can often be fast, right. but downsizing, decluttering, all of these things, we have to realize that often we 
accumulate these things over a decade, over yeah. a, a year, lifetime. A lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's not all going to change instantly. For us, this has been quite a process right. too. I mean, yes. we're making these big changes right now where, you know, we, we got rid of stuff out of basically half our house mm-hmm. and then even went down from there. And now we're selling like everything because we're, we're, we're mm-hmm. selling our house. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I've actually talked about that. Yeah. And, and so we're selling our house and we're selling everything because for our next move, we, we want to just have as little as possible so that we can be as flexible as possible. Yes. And that's wild. But the different things that we've done slowly has, has been like the complete opposite direction that we ever expected. It's like, nope, we're going we're less and less and less and less. Yeah. And, totally. and that's allowed us to do so many things that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yes. So it's, uh, it's been just a incredible kind of journey of understanding what we need, what we don't, where things go, where they come from and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it takes time. Yeah. It just takes time. It, it's a huge process. And, um, and, and likewise, as you're talking through all of those things that you're doing, I mean, I also have made a point to live on bus lines and, and, and for me in the last six months or so, while, um, while I had the shop, I really didn't feel like I could go vehicle free, um, because I might need to run and do the thing or there might be an errand or there might be whatever. And, you know, and I felt, I kind of felt like a task rabbit attached to that business, that business model. And since having closed that, I, you know, I actually used, um, I used an electrical issue with my vehicle to be an excuse to like slow myself down or like basically like disincentivize my, you know, choosing to like go in the car. I'm like, I'm going to have to jump this thing if I'm going to be able to drive it. I rode my bike and a scooter all summer long. And, and then when I got to fall, um, I remember hopping into the car one day and just like it, like the glass and the metal, it felt like I was in this giant, like isolating box. And, um, and I decided that as fall and winter rolled down and as, and as the two wheels didn't make sense that I'm like, you know what? I, I don't want to get back into my vehicle. So, so, I mean, I was already living on the bus line, hadn't really been making use of it and decided, I'm like, Hey, you know what? Let's figure this out. And so the last three months I've mastered it. A couple nights ago, had to move the vehicle for a snow emergency and wouldn't you know it, um, as I'm moving it around the corner, I realized that like the axles are busted on this thing. Oh, and I'm like, oh, and it was, it was in that moment as I'm like, oh, that's a problem. And then realized that like, I'm like, oh, but wait, I'm like, I had an appointment in the suburbs the next morning and it was the, it was the, like, it struck me that I'd already figured out how to do it on a bus. Like I already had my plan in place. I wasn't going to drive the vehicle anyway. And that had been one of the reasons that I had been like afraid to let go of it in the first place was yeah. like, well, what if I need to get out to the suburbs? And so I actually, I'm like, this is it. It's a, it's an old vehicle. I called, uh, you know, I found the best junker deal I could find online. And, um, I've got someone coming to pick up that vehicle on Monday. And, wow. and I think going back to the doing the exact opposite of what we expected, right? Um, I think the bigger thing is that we're doing the exact opposite of what our culture expects, right? So when I sold my house and bought the condo or the you know cooperative unit and paid cash, I got asked questions about whether I did you lose your house? What okay? happened? Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm more than okay. Like my cost of living just dropped by like thousands, right? And, you know, my car not working. Oh, my gosh. Are you OK? I'm like, yeah, I, I, I don't want to drive it. I'm using it as an incentive. And um, and it's going to save me a lot of money to not be driving that. Right. And um, the bigger thing for me on both of those is when it comes to climate adaptation, because that's 
part of this process, it's a major part of my drive to adapt in this way, is that my emissions are so much lower, both in terms of housing and vehicle. Totally. You're getting on a bus that is already going on that route. Right. It's already there. Right. (laughs) You're just using it. Exactly. And there are already plans in place to electrify the, the buses. You know, and I might pick up an electric car at some point, but at this point I've designed a life that doesn't require it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we've got, you know, we've got um, grocery stores between the warehouse and my house so I can grab food when I choose to, right? I'm working on my diet right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, before we started recording, you said something about about how, um, you know, the minimalist community overlaps some, you know, the Venn diagram of minimalism and veganism and sustainability and all those things, how there is so much overlap. Coming at things from a climate lens um, when it comes to um, plant-based eating has been a really interesting case study for me. There's, you know, there's this sense that, that people who go vegan or who identify as vegan are are militant or are, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot of connection to that. It seems to me there's also a lot of um, perfection in that, right? Because my gosh, if you eat butter, you're not vegan, right? It, right? And so, um, so a lot of it has to do with our language, our judgment, our expectations of ourselves and each other. And so, as I've been on a journey to reduce my meat intake, to reduce my dairy intake, to incorporate more, um, you know, more of the um, plant-based foods, and I, I will tell you that I have found uh, like a beefless taco crumble that is just like, oh my gosh, better than the real thing. It's like, I mean, it's actually, it has become this really fun journey of adaptation of finding new things to like, yeah. right? Building new habits, um, but also being okay with imperfection, right? It's, we don't have to be perfect. I, you know what? I can have butter on my toast in the morning, but use plant-based for my baking and I'm never going to know the difference. Hmm. I can try these things. I can try new kinds of, you know, plant-based milks. And it doesn't mean I can't drink dairy, but what would happen if like, oh my gosh, I love like the blueberry lavender um, almond milk at Trader Joe's. Mm, so good. And I'm making my own oat milk from time to time, right? I mean, like, cool. it, it, it's again, it turns into creativity yeah. and it's not about loss. It's about discovery. And exploration. And exploration. Yeah. And, and creativity and 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 getting excited about change, which, because right now I think the biggest thing that we're dealing with when it comes to climate adaptation is fear. Yeah. Much of it is fear of yeah. loss, of yeah. change. Yeah. I, I love what you're hitting on here because to me this has been my entire experience with my whole position of this break the twitch thing. Uh, everything is that if we show and expect and and create something that is this ideal of minimalism, perfection, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we have everything. It's like, where do you charge your phone? Mm-hmm. Like, where where's the phone charger? Or nope, like, exactly. where's your food? Like, I don't see any food in here. You know, mm-hmm. th- I, I see a lot of influence of like, yes, it's beautiful. I love your your floor to ceiling windows. It's yes. lovely. <laughs> but it it prevents people mm-hmm. from trying it. Yeah. And it prevents It's like this weird gatekeeping thing. And I see that in food. I see that in minimalism. I Mm -hmm. see that in intentionality and zero waste. Um, Some of my favorite zero waste um, people are are, are doing it in a way that is like, I'm not perfect. 
I, this happened today and, you know, they handed me a straw with my thing and I forgot to say I didn't want one and this happens, but I'm doing my best and talking about ways to do that. It's so great. And a girl gone, the girl gone green is a friend of mine who, who does a lot of this stuff. And, and it just need, we need to take a more sustainable approach to making these changes or else it's not it's not going to work. We know this with diets. We know this with exercise. We know this with habits that when, when we go and expect perfection of ourselves, when, when it goes wrong, Mm -hmm. it just, uh, well, yeah. So I I love that. I love the idea of integrating exploration and changes in ways, finding things you love. And you're still at the end of the day, consuming Mm -hmm. less meat at the end of the day, you're still consuming less dairy. And it's yeah. still having the desired outcome. Totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and I don't miss it, right? I don't. I I because I'm not saying I can't have it. I don't like. It's again. It's like again. It's like dieting, right? Like, mm-hmm. like if you if you inhibit yourself from you know or you say say no, you know th- that absolutism gets in your way. Yeah. Right. And I think I think self compassion and and embracing the things that aren't perfect is is one of the things that we need the most right now. Yet we obsess with following perfection, mm-hmm. perceived perfection, mm-hmm. the, the, the fitness athletes, the, mm-hmm. the bodybuilding and like, like, uh, powerlifting mm-hmm. accounts that I follow mm-hmm. on, on Instagram are like, mm-hmm. to me, probably not achievable with what I'm willing to do right. uh, in my day to day life. <laughs> exactly. Yet I see that as, you know, the, mm-hmm. the goal mm-hmm. and with, Again, with minimalism, with, with design, with, mm-hmm. does everything have to be like Kinfolk magazine, uh, this perfect, yeah. perfect design and everything. It's like, yeah. why do we obsess over this? Right. Yeah. I, I, right. It's, I think it's, I think it's a really good question. And I think like, you know, what's interesting for me is, is to think on this and to reflect on the imperfection is the goods that I started out with and how things that are imperfect, because I really set out with Junket to see if there was a market for like the doilies that were gorgeous and people that, you know, someone's grandma had spent hours making, but it might have a small tear in it. And I'm like, there's got to be a market for that. The artists, you know, like the people must want these things. And, and they did, right? Um, but it also became, it was such a, that was such a powerful thing for me because having been abandoned in my marriage, mm-hmm. it became about reclamation. It became about finding value, it became, right? And, and creating new possibility. And there was so much metaphor in in the things that we were ushering forward and in how I was turning my life around that I would say that that is one of the most powerful things. And it's and it allowed me to accept imperfection in myself, in others. It allowed me to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to show up and I'm going to be my best every day and it's not going to be perfect, but it's got to be enough, right? I The people in my life are going to love me the way that I am or maybe they won't be the people in my life anymore. Right? Radical acceptance. And of course, I need to show up that way too. So yes, I think that those picture-perfect bodyguards and the, the all of the perfect is a direct reflection of our consumer culture and the fact that everything is manufactured and shiny, right? And everything is perfect and it's lined up on the shelf just like that. And you can get the one that's exactly the same as that one, that one, that one, that one, that one. And as soon as it's got a crack, it's not good anymore. Yeah. And you got to throw. I mean, it's the message, right? And it's a very, it's a, it's a such a such a um, pervasive message. It's about getting comfortable with yourself, and we are not taught to do that either. Mm-hmm. So, getting comfortable with yourself, yeah. The, 
a big part of this for me too has has been learning to let go of who I am based on mm-hmm. this, my, mm-hmm. my, my shirt or the thing on my shirt. Yeah. And all yeah. of a sudden that because it says one thing versus a different thing, it's worth a thousand dollars versus ten. Yeah. Just because it says something different. Right. Or right. a different company put their thing on it. <laughs> right. It's it's yeah. kind of wild and and learning to find confidence in myself mm-hmm. outside of the th- in myself. Yeah. Outside right. of myself. Right. Learning to find it in in just here mm-hmm. instead of mm-hmm. with the things that surround me right. has been yeah. a weird. Mm-hmm. oddly vulnerable journey mm-hmm. <laughs> of right? letting go yeah. of this stuff. Yeah. Isn't it? Well, yeah. And well, what yeah. are people going to think of you? Yeah. Right? Well, guess what? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. But that's a, that's a lesson we have to learn over and over and over again with regard to all sorts of things too. So, um, but but yeah. And, and still, I mean, still the things that you choose to surround yourself with do say something, right? And what does that look like? Um, and what is that message? Um, but ultimately you want that message to be a reflection of your values. Yeah. I think that that's a huge opportunity for us to think about how brands have conditioned us in it like a narcissistic relationship, right? Where we want to attach ourselves to that brand, where we don't feel good about ourselves if we don't have that brand, right? Or if we have a lesser brand, they are playing off of ego. They're playing off of shame. My take is that those are abusive relationships. They're extractive relationships. They are not making you feel better about the choices that you're making. They're making you feel inadequate unless you make their choices. I just think that that's, I think that that's something that when we reject it and, and, and call bullshit, I think there's a lot of power in that. Is there a way to step into that? Recognizing that we're in a system, right? Like, like understand the system, see, you know, step back and pay attention, observe, see what's going on, you know, like understand the politics, understand this, the, the financial piece of this. This is about extracting wealth, right? Understand that. Um, but I think that, um, I think it's kind of like waking up in the matrix, quite honestly, right? Um, where like, you know, Keanu like busts out of the, like the jelly pod thing. And he's like, <gasps> and it's like, like all of a sudden it's like, it actually is a very different world than we've been conditioned and lulled into, right? We grow up in, in, you know, it's the deconstruction and it's all about process, right? So life is about process. And, and so as you're on your process and making the shifts and I'm on my process of making the shifts, um, giving ourselves permission to be imperfect and to like what we like and to choose what we choose is just incredibly empowering. Um, I don't know how people can break out of it without, like in my case, it was, I had traumatic experiences that led to that, right? Upsides of trauma. And so I wouldn't say, you know, go chasing trauma, but I would say, you know, if, and as you're experiencing trauma or as you're going through something difficult, look for the gift, right? I, um, used to work with a woman who just wonderful boss and, and she would like, we'd sit in her office to be like, where's the fucking gift? I need the fucking gift. And, and right? And I was just like, yeah. I love that. Isn't it good? Right? You so make like, a poster. Right. <laughs> right. And so, and and um, and quite honestly, the poster making, I mean, with Junket, some of the products that we sell, the most popular ones are, you know, quotations that are printed on, um, on book pages. And it actually, like, those for me were about finding the messages that helped me cope. And quite honestly, namaste, motherfucker, was one of our most popular sayings. And that came straight out of divorce coping, right? Where, like, it was, like, it was the thing that, like, like I could, like, grip my teeth and, like, Argh! 
And it was so helpful to have like a mantra to cling to, to like, like to get through that. I was like, as that business started, I'm like, I'm like, someday I want to share that with others. And it was, it's been so neat to have that filter in. Right. But yeah, where's the fucking gift and uh, seeking it and pursuing it and, um, and looking for it allows it to present itself. Being open to it. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's a whole other thing that, yeah, yeah, just the the mindset around seeing all the bad, you can see all the bad things that happen and there can be all these other things happening and you're just, if you're not looking for them, they just. Right, right, exactly. Yep. You got to look for it for sure. Well, shall we do a question from the bowl? Sure. Let's do a question from the bowl. Is that the bowl over there? Yep. If you don't mind grabbing it. I will get the vessel. Looking at who you were five years ago, how would that version of you react if they saw you now? Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, that's a good that one. Is a good one. So YouTube viewer cast 9 of 47. Okay. Yeah. That's that's an interesting one. So the shop would have been a little over a year old. Hmm. Um, I would have just expanded to bring in a bunch of vendors. It was chaotic. It was before the road construction. But we weren't doing anything with the carbon dioxide emissions and nothing of that sort. And so I think if they saw me now and saw the work and the, and the actual, the way that this has panned out to to build social response to climate change, to have the expertise that I have now and the way I've been able to incorporate that um, and integrate some of that growing up history and some of the political things that are happening right now and to be able to help people heal um, their relationships towards stuff and to be moving into a role where I'm speaking and consulting and all of those good things. Um, I think I think she'd probably be like, Dang, how'd that happen? Because you're running a store right now, right? <laughs> but um, I think she would feel like the work that went into um, digging in the basement and sorting out all of the beads and the paper clips and all of the work that she knew would be work um, is panning out. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's a great answer. That's a, that's a great question. It is. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Julie, where can people find you? Uh, online and what you're doing. Online at shopjunket.com slash Julie. You'll get to uh, booking for consulting and classes and things like that. On social media, you can find the sh- the um, the business at, at shopjunket. So it's J-U-N-K-E-T. Personally, I'm, you know, running around on Twitter and talking about climate and things like that um, at Julie Junket and likewise on LinkedIn. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, well, sure. it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you through all of this. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and, yeah. and everything with the, the podcast here. Thanks for the opportunity, Anthony. Appreciate it. All right. And that concludes my conversation with Julie. If you enjoyed this episode, please do take a moment to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. And if you are willing, please do share the podcast with someone you think might enjoy it as well. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and I will see you in the next one.